part two of session 90. Let's dive here into the design of humanity. Let's begin. In the last episode, we covered a conversation that was uh, mainly about the shape and form of other entities in not only other third density planets, but in fourth and fifth density. And how does that change? It's very interesting. And I hope you watched it because this is going to now take the conversation. Um, I left the last question, which I'll just briefly cover. Uh, which was the transition now into knowing a little bit more of the design of the not precisely the planet but the experience on the planet as third density beings so yeah the last episode was fascinating i really loved it and it had to do with the the shape and you know how do we form ourselves and why do we have this body and what happens in fourth density and in fifth density really cool stuff so if you didn't Go listen to it, watch it, um, depending on the platform you are. Now, to um, recap the last question, I said that it was a transition between the conversation that was before about uh, the shape of the body and how does it change in forward density and so on. And done in essence as this was question 11, if uh, this was due to the archetypical mind, like the archetypical mind is deciding the shape of the individuals, um, pretty good question. But Ra said no, that this is prior to the formation of the archetypical mind. So if we can call it a linear process, we could see that the logos designs the shape that the third density being or even the second density being will have, and then the archetypical mind. So in a step-by-step -step process, that's the case. And so that's going to shift the conversation into another part of the conversation and we'll pick it up there. So this is um, question 12, where Don says, was there a reason for choosing the forms that we, that have evolved upon this planet? And if so, what was it? Was there a reason for the Logos to choose the forms that we have now here? Ron says, we are not entirely sure why our Logos and several neighboring Logoi would of approximately the same space-time of flowering chose the bipedal erect form of the second density apes to invest. It has been our supposition which we share with you as long as you are aware that this is mere opinion that our logos was interested in shall we say furthering intensifying the veiling process by offering to the third density form the near complete probability for the development of speech taking complete precedence over concept communication or telepathy. I actually like that um, that view or that definition or parallel to, um, to telepathy and we'll get to that. But first, what's the question and what is the answer? The question is um, if there is a reason in essence, for us to be the way we are. Why are we the way we are? Was this a plan? Was this something that the Logos designed for one particular reason? And so Ra first acknowledges their ignorance on why. They don't know, um, which I kind of enjoy and like. You know, you can see the uh, humanity. <laughs> can I use that word for Ra? Uh, you know, the the limited aspect of Ra and yeah they're not entirely sure I also love how they say um, you see phrasing is everything pay attention to this when they say why are logos and several neighboring logo they refer to other stars around so uh, I would say uh, Proxima Centauri and other ones which I'm not really sure which are all the, the neighboring ones. I don't know if Sirius is too far. Could that be considered? Although they're different, they're tree-like, apparently, according to Ra. So, in any case, 
why neighboring Logoi decided to have the same bipedal erect uh, form that we have in apes, right? So it seems like, and they say flowering. I love that so much more than, you know, uh, evolution. It sounds so dry. <laughs> so flowering, it's it's blossoming. Yes, it's something that is, it's happening. You know, it's not some random stuff um, impacting another and cause and effect kind of thing. You know, there's a flowering of of the the shape and form that we take and everything takes everything is like a flower you know this is this is a chinese concept in taoism at least that you know uh, things grow things are not made they're not out of parts they're 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 growing they're changing they're transforming and uh, there are no parts there are no parts we haven't seen a part yet <laughs> all we see is patterns not parts um, all right, so yes, Ra does offer their supposition, and I'll emphasize because I know they would like that, that you are aware, you the listener, that this is their mere opinion. And I kind of like their opinion, but let's not forget that that's their opinion. Um, they say and they think that our logos, they call it our logos, because remember Ra evolved in Venus, uh, our sister planet in so many ways. Um, that our Logos was interested in further intensifying the veiling process. Hmm, what does that mean? You already know that the veiling process caused this ignorance of who we are. We don't know that we are the Creator. And so we look at each other and say, Hmm, you look familiar. <laughs> you look human, just like me. But I'm not sure who you are. And I can't see your mental processes, nor can I see my own uh, deep mental processes unless I really devote myself to it and then I find that me and you are the same uh, so that is the veiling process now the logos according to Ra in their opinion they uh, the logos might have wanted to intensify that veiling process how so well that is to giving uh, the third density form ourselves because of our structure, the way our body is made, we can only communicate in verbal form, right? Or written form, you understand my meaning. It's a, it's a very uh, crude way of communication. They say uh, the near complete probability, right? Offering the third density, the near complete probability for development of speech, taking complete precedence Okay, so speech, verbal communication, complete precedence over concept communication or telepathy as we know it. You see, in telepathy, you, let's say I communicate to you, I want a glass of water. You, know, you don't hear the words, I want a glass of water. You just suddenly, you know, get the message. And that's a concept, you know, need for water. You know, I can't describe it in words because I water it down. <laughs> um, but you understand the meaning? Like that's telepathy. That's concept communication. And so this makes a lot more sense. And believe me, we would have no problems or near, not nearly as many problems as, as we have on Earth is if we communicated this way. Because what we do is that we use words to describe concepts and then we don't agree with the concepts because we all think of a different thing you know um, so if somebody reads a definition they'll interpret it in a completely different way than the other so why is this intensifying the veiling process because we become even more ignorant of what we're trying to say or what we're trying to communicate and you know, it's uh, it's difficult you know to to understand the other person let alone know the other person to understand them is very difficult so that intensifies the veiling process why would the logos want to do that is it evil does it want bad things for us because it wants us to break the duality here the logos is you <laughs> you are the logos incarnated so it is an experience and it intensifies the experience so it has a more vivid one you see 
Um, I'll probably talk about this in other questions in this uh, episode, but think of the intensity of the experience as the gradual or graduation. I mean, I'm talking about not graduation and graduating, uh, ascending, but um, modulating, right? The difficulty of the experience. See, the difficulty lies between I know that I am the creator and I have no idea who I am, right? So maybe uh, modulating these two extremes, that's where we get an intensity of experience. Why? Because if it's easy, like it was prior to the veil, it was boring. There was no polarization or very little. And it was just plain boring. Think about it as a game. If the game is easy, would you want to play it? You won't. Maybe you try it. You say, okay, I did it. That's it. Is the purpose of the game beating the game? Obviously not, because then you would be satisfied. You would say, well, I beat the game. You know, I'm so satisfied, but you're not. You want to add a little level of difficulty. See, you're playing against somebody else in chess, right? And you're way better at them than them, right? At the game. Would you continue to play them? No, you won't. Or you're playing against somebody who is way better than you. Would you continue playing? No, you wouldn't. So you want to modulate that intensity of how close am I, you know, to, to winning. Winning is irrelevant. And uh, a lot of us in planet Earth, we have forgotten that. And now we get into competitive playing because it's fun. You know, it plays with that same dynamic, you know, it creates that sort of um, mini mental orgasm of winning or losing depression, you know. <laughs> um, but we forget that it's a game, you know, it's supposed to be fun, that that's the, the, the purpose of the game, to, for it to be fun. And so the creation is supposed to be enjoyable. Let's not call it fun, let's just call it enjoyable. And so it is not enjoyable if it's too easy and I know who I am, or perhaps if it's so difficult that I have no idea who I am. <laughs> uh, so let's continue on, and I'll continue with this analogy as it's appropriate. Ra finishes and says, We also have the supposition that the so-called opposable thumb was looked upon as an excellent means of intensifying the veiling process, so that rather than rediscovering the powers of the mind, the third density entity would, by the form of its physical manifestation, be drawn to the making, holding, and using of physical tools. So once again, instead of using the mind, that's the level of difficulty you see. If you knew who you were and you had the power of the mind as opposed to using this feeble body to do things, then uh, you wouldn't care much about life, right? You would be using your mind to do everything and you know that you're the creator, nothing is, is at risk, there is no passion to anything and so on. That's prevail conditions and now with the addition again this is their supposition and opinion Ra's opinion um, the opposable thumb allowed us to create tools yes that's what allowed us to grab things and to yeah use uh, physical arrangement of things to facilitate our lives that's kind of primitive when you compare it to the mind if the mind can use its power to build things because, well, just like telepathy, uh, you communicate concepts with the mind, you build without having too many issues, right? Um, or planning too much and yeah, your, your structure doesn't fall away because you need to learn how to build it. So um, yeah, making, holding and using of physical tools. This intensifies the, the veiling Again, my interpretation of what Ra's saying here is because, yeah, the power of the mind would be easier to wield as opposed to, you know, your hands. And we have been learning and continue to learn how to build stuff and create better structures. So uh, that intensifies the experience for sure. It's, uh, it's a little bit more challenging, let's put it that way. The game becomes more challenging. And we all know that. Nobody can agree by saying, no, no, I want uh, an easy game. Those are the ones who are tired of losing, <laughs> who 
who haven't learned the game. You know, the game is about fun. And so you'll continue to lose because you're not paying attention to the meaning of the game. It's to be, you know, enjoy, have fun. <laughs> We've lost that. And so we need to trace it back. I'm not making a light joke on this. I know there is there is an ego structure in our minds that needs to be dissolved because that's the one that is causing the issue. You know, that's the one that is winning or losing. And yeah, as long as we have that, then life is not very enjoyable for sure. Let's move to the next question. Question 13, Don says, I will guess that the system of archetypes then was devised to further extend these particular principles. Is this correct? Ross says, the phrasing is faulty. However, it is correct that the images of the archetypical mind and, sorry, the images of the archetypical mind are the children of the third density physical manifestations of form of the logos, which has created the particular evolutionary opportunity. So now it's interesting to think that uh, Ra is saying that a couple of things here. Uh, let's take care of Don's question. Uh, he, in essence, said that the archetype was created to further uh, intensify or extend, right? Extend the uh, these particular principles of posable thumb and speech, so uh, mind and body structure for for human experience. And Ross says that and the phrasing is faulty because I, I don't think that the archetypical mind was created to extend that in particular, uh, but um, yeah, the archetypical mind suits better the form that we have. Let's put it that way. Like it's, um, it's the refinement of of that, or it refines it a little bit more, right? Into the, the way we're going to use the mind and the body. Because that's what the archetypical mind is. It's the mind, body, spirit uh, structure for evolution. And evolution is simply knowing the self. So intensifying the veil just produces a higher, um, a denser veil, if you will. So yeah that's how i see that this the archetypical mind plays a role in refining the structure that the logos intended to have with those things in mind the opposable thumb and um speech as a way of communication one of the the things that ra mentioned okay so um what is what is correct is that the images of the archetypical mind and here's where i I find it interesting to think that um, it seems like it's it's um, it's fair to assume that other planets like Mars, Maldic, uh, and Venus, of course, they all share the same. Not I don't think they look human, just like us. I think the apes here have a particular beauty that is not in in other planets. I like to think that other planets had a different flora and fauna. So maybe the forms that evolved there were also bipedal and erect, just like us humans, but they not necessarily need to be ape looking, right? Like us. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that has to be the case, but we don't know. Um, however, they do say that the why do I say this? Because they, they say that the archetypical mind, which we share with, with all the other planets in this particular star or sun, um, that, um, that shape or, yeah, the shape that is in the images, the humans there, uh, they are the children of the third density physical manifestation of form of the Logos, which has created the particular evolution, which has created the particular evolutionary opportunity. So, yeah, it seems like it's the shape that we all share here in, um, in the solar system. Let's see what the next question says. Question 14, Don says, Now, as I understand it, the archetypes are the biases of a very fundamental nature that, under free will, generate the experiences of each entity. Is this correct? Uh. 
Ross says the archetypical mind is part of that mind which informs all experience. Please recall the definition of the archetypical mind as the repository of those refinements to the cosmic or all mind made by this particular logos and peculiar only to this logos. So I want you to visualize this. Um, there is pure awareness. You can have a particular direction to pure awareness. It's simply everywhere and nowhere. Okay. So pure awareness, this is the grand central sun. Right? Pure awareness manifests into the void, into its own void. Right? It manifests as form. This form is still is still formless, but it is form in contrast with vacuity or void or uh, nothingness or everythingness, whatever you want to see it, you know, infinity. In infinity, the contrast, the first form is just manifestation. Okay, I know this is kind of difficult to visualize because our imagination has limits. Um, but try to imagine it. Okay, and so that wants to have form, particular forms, and it ha it can have infinite amount of forms. That's where the logos comes into play, right? Creating an archetypical mind. Um, but there is, like we say, a hierarchy of uh, of logoi. So there is the grand central sun, for example, which has specific biases collected from the other octaves. And so it manifests itself as the first or the great uh, archetype, right? I'll put it that way. Then those are refined and further evolved in galaxies. Galaxies do that, but they also do the same process of refining it through stars or suns, our sun. So there is there is a hierarchical process in which every logos uh, reshapes the uh, the structure, right? In which this pure consciousness filters through and manifests as. That is the way in which we we need to see the archetypical mind, okay? So this is why Ra says the archetypical mind is part of that mind which informs all experience. It's um, it's difficult to call it surface level because we have so many levels at this point. The metaphysics here are very complex. I have to admit that, but uh, they're not difficult. They're just complex and it just takes uh, a certain amount of interest and love to understand and visualize it all, right? So I would say the archetypical mind is part of the deeper portions of the mind, of course, but they're not the deepest portion, as you can see, because it's just part of the logos and is dependent upon the, uh, it's not the logos, it would be the sub-sub logos. If, if whatever nomenclature you want to use at this point is the sun, but the sun depends on the galaxy and the galaxy depends on the grand central sun, you see? And that, I think it's oversimplifying it, but I'll leave it at that. So, it is part of a deep portion of our minds, and yet it's not the deepest, right? So, it informs all experience to us, to the manifested consciousness that we are. And so, Ra suggests to please recall the definition of the archetypical mind as the repository of those refinements to the cosmic or all minds made by this particular logos and peculiar only to this logos so that we know this is very regional our archetypical mind is only of this sun great and that is a refinement of the cosmic or all mind like i said the grand central sun if you will if i can use that Probably better to call it the cosmic mind. Yes, uh, that one which informs all other logos or logoi. And so they are refinements, right? Uh, repository of refinements, I should say. They say more here, so let's see what else they say. 
Thus, it may be seen as one of the roots of the mine, not the deepest, but certainly the most informative in some ways. The other root of mine to be recalled is that racial or planetary mine, which also informs the conceptualizations of each entity to some degree. Um, so, um, these roots of the mine, to me, go, uh, they're more surface than the archetypical mine, right? The archetypical mine seems to be at the core of this logos, like where the refinement of this logos is the archetypical mind. And so every other planet here will have the same archetypical mind, varied by some small things depending on the planet in which they, because there's influence from other planets and that depends on position. I won't get into those astrological details because I'm not the best at it, uh, but also it goes beyond this the scope of this question. Um, but yeah, there are other, if you see the tree as, you know, the, the deepest portions of the tree, not the deepest, but deeper portions of the roots of the tree, that's the archetypical mind. And then shallower parts of the roots are the planetary or racial mind, uh, which also informs the conceptualizations of us manifested entities to a certain degree. Um, this is very interesting to go into, you know, the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the unconscious mind, and all the different different levels of uh, of the mind. But uh, the point is that you can see that there is a flow of information being refined. Pure consciousness filters through uh, these different parts or structures of the mind. Uh, so that is the archetypical mind. That's the place that the archetypical mind has in our own mind, which is infinite, of course, and it goes all the way to uh, the creator, intelligent infinity, and so on. And it would be helpful you know, to draw this the way you like it, whichever way you see it. I find it that my students, they kind of make their own diagrams as to you know, how does this work and place it somewhere so you can see it and it's very helpful next question is question 15 Don says at what point in the evolutionary process does the archetypical mind first have effect upon the entity Ross says at the point at which an entity either by accident or design reflects an archetype the archetypical mind resonates thusly random activation of the archetypical resonances begins almost immediately in third density experience. The disciplined use of this tool of evolution comes far later in this process. So I'm not sure where Don was going with this question, uh, but we seem to have a little bit of a nuance there in terms of, oh yeah, he's asking at what point in the evolutionary process yeah, it needs to be uh, untangled or disentangled, right? Because it's, he's introducing, introducing evolutionary process, right? And within the evolutionary process, when does the archetypical mind first have an effect upon the entity? And so Ra is saying, in essence, uh, there are random activations because that's just how we work. We have resonance. Just like, for example, activating the heart. Sometimes it happens randomly or by design, it could be, right? That the heart would be activated and so you have that feeling of love and you say, well, that's odd. I've never had that feeling of love. So that's a random activation and, or it could be by design, like I said, I don't know. Uh, but it, it happens, right? And then the conscious use of your heart would be something that you, um, you develop over time and you practice and you uh, you practice not as, not as you know uh, uh, practicing for a um, an event or something but just as a practice as um, medical practice you see you do it every day <laughs> that's your profession you're a loving being um, so yeah I think the art what they say here is the same or very similar 
the archetypical mind resonates at some point in our experience as we sort of touch with those archetypes and we feel oh you know you don't have to consciously know that oh i just felt this archetype uh, i would like to investigate that's why as i have said it is not necessary to study the archetypical mind for you to feel the archetypical mind clearly um, any inner work would activate these in a intuitive way and you would be able to um, embody them when they're needed without your conscious knowing particularly but it can be very helpful if you knew of course because then you have the power of knowledge so that's why Ra says the disciplined use of this tool of evolution comes far later in this process so um, I wouldn't even um, dare to say that I know the surface of how to use the archetypes um, I think clever people uh, than me clever people than me uh, may have more knowledge I don't but uh, it's something that comes far later in the process of evolution so I guess that depends on each and every one of the students of the archetypical mind to realize when that's happening Question 16, Don says, what was the ultimate objective of this Logos in designing the archetypical mind as it did? Oh, that's a very broad question. <laughs> Ra says, each Logos desires to create a more eloquent expression of experience of the creator by the creator. The archetypical mind is intended to heighten this ability to express the creator in patterns more like the fanned peacock's tail. Each facet of the creator, vivid upright and shining with articulated beauty wow poetry of sixth density so what was its purpose like why did the sun decide to decide to design the archetypical mind the way it did right i think Ra gave a beautiful description here and something that is lost sometimes in students of the raw material, beginner students, I would say, or at least uh, students who haven't delved into the conscious recognition that there are no creators, uh, there are no distinct beings, there is not a logos designing things for us creatures, entities who are subdued by the powers of the sun and so on we are not minions we're not slaves we're not uh yeah some people like to suggest because this is planet earth is a prison and there are archons and uh who have whatever things dominating us this is when mythology gets taken to nordic levels you see like the vikings used to think <laughs> of mythology uh, like they're real and they're acting upon us and all this stuff this is still happening I think this is also part of our collective consciousness that we still believe in mythology as a real thing and not as a descriptive process of what's happening within us uh, heaven and, and, uh, and hell kind of thing is still uh, very prevalent in many spiritual seekers so I'll take the moment to emphasize that Ra when they say an eloquent expression of experience of the creator by the creator you see and i would add for the creator because who else is there to experience it but the creator so uh, this takes away the whole idea that the sun is imposing all of this on us why is it so cruel and we'll find out that actually the sun is not cruel at all to the contrary <laughs> but i'll leave that to the next couple of questions i think uh, in any case, Ra is responding that each Logos desires to create a more eloquent expression of experience of the Creator by the Creator. It makes sense. The Logos is not an entity in and of itself. It's just a sort of, just like your mind is not an entity, it's an activity of consciousness. The Logos is an activity of consciousness refining its own experience into a particular way. It's so simple, right? And... The archetypical minds, the way we design the mind, the, ar the architecture of the mind, is intended 
to heighten this ability to express the creator in patterns. And then they give the poetic um, description of a peacock's tail, each facet of the creator vivid, upright, and shining with articulated beauty. I cannot comment on that because that's just pure poetry. So yeah, each logos is designing the archetypical mind to have its own beautiful experience. Let's put it that way. Not terrifying or uh, dramatic, although it is dramatic, of course, because that's the purpose of this. It's a play in the sense of theatrical play. But you must wake up to know that you're the actor, not the character. Next question. Question 17, Don says, is Ra familiar with the archetypical mind of some other logos that is not the same as the one we experience? Ra says, there are entities of Ra, there are entities of Ra which have served as wonders. Oh, this question is awesome. Yes, pay attention to this. There are entities of Ra which have served as far wanderers to those of another logos. The experience has been one which staggers the intellectual and intuitive capacities for each logos, sets up an experiment enough at variance from all others that the subtleties of the archetypical mind of another logos are mo most murky to the resonating mind, body and spirit complexes of this logos. So I'm just going to put it in plain English and they'll get into it. Um, things are so weird in other planets that you would have no idea how to figure out what's happening. <laughs> um, so how does the how does Ra know this? How do they uh, how are they able if they are part of these archetypical minds? Well, let me explain that if you have that question. Ra is no longer under the influence of the veil, right? Big thing, big change. Archetypical mind is completely different. It's only for third density. Uh, second, as wanderers, they they sort of, as as it is my understanding, otherwise we wouldn't have wanderers here. This also explains why wanderers here feel so weird. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, Yes, because you're adopting a new form that you have no idea you could have. <laughs> In the past, uh, you were some other form. Who, kn who knows what was your original form? And so the database in your particular mind complex is so different than this one. Just like Ra, you know, would know. Uh, let me, th this is going to be beautiful. So let's just take again. I gave you the, the visualization of pure consciousness that you are. Yes, pure consciousness filters it, it's, itself through the different uh, hierarchies of Logoi, right? Galaxies, stars, planets. And, you know, it takes all those forms. It, it refines itself, it shapes into those structures and it creates itself within the plan of that particular Logos. It evolves, it moves away from third density, fourth, fifth, sixth, the majority of wanderers being of sixth density, they are pretty close to pure consciousness. They are in that state in which they're not separated. There's no polarity, there's nothing. And so they go wander. This is the reason why they are not under the influence of the archetypical mind, veil and so on, of course. And so they can wander and have an experience. Now, I'm gonna give an example of this uh, soon enough, but they they can in sixth density sort of um, relay this information which is not like they go and then they return it's all one connection right but the social memory complex that rise gets informed by each wandering or each experience could be doesn't have to be a wandering per se as ra has said in the past they just uh, connect in love and light with the rest of the creation. That's even more nurturing. That's what actually creates the uh, the harvest of seven density, is my opinion, because they need to become love and light of the whole creation. So it intensifies and they go through the portal of seven density, uh, annihilating any sort of form or limitation and becoming one with the creator. 
So at that stage, you know, they, they can absorb all of this. And so the thing is that they cannot explain it to us because we need to understand it with our intellect and intuitive uh, structures, which we are in the state of um, very minutia type of experience. You know, it's a very dense experience, and very heavy, you know, and so it's how could we describe, you know, process? I can't even imagine them. You know, it's beyond us. So that's why they say there are entities of Ra which have served as wanderers in other logos or stars or planets. The experience has been one which staggers the intellectual and intuitive capacities for each logos. Each star sets up an experiment so different from all the others that the subtleties of the archetypical minds there are most murky to the resonating uh, mind, let's just call it, of us. So, yeah, it's so different, you know, and uh, that just gives you an idea of how vast or infinite this experience of reality is. And to know that this is all of you, only that you're experiencing this right now because, well, you have to experience all things, you know, individually. <laughs> you cannot experience all things at once at once if you did which you can you can experience all things at once try it try to have no thoughts no limitations within your mind what do you have nothing you will say it's not nothing is everything <laughs> because nothing is how everything looks to the mind which can only create form and when it seems no form no limitation it says nothing <laughs> there is no nothing there is everything, infinity. But all right, uh, this is, uh, oh, I wanted to give one more um, example of this, of how weird this is to us. I, I assume that you have at least heard of people claiming that mystical experiences um, and very often now we hear psychedelic experiences to be ineffable. Although they were experienced, it was very vivid. It was form, it had, it had everything, but it is impossible to explain to the intellectual mind of the human, uh, let alone write it down or, um, yeah, it's just not possible. Those are hints, those, those are glimpses into what I believe are deeper portions of the mind, you know? So navigation, uh, this is what we call psychonauts, right? Uh, those who are exploring the psyche in different ways, they can do it with breathing exercise, so with psychedelics, as I mentioned, they can do it uh, in certain practices of uh, inducing a trance state, um, and so on like this is this is all the beauty of wanting to explore you know this deep mind but yeah that's um i'll leave you that to the imagination let's go to the next question question 18 don says there seems to have been created by this logos to me anyway a large percentage of entities whose distortion was toward warfare in that we had the maldic and the mars experience and now earth it seems that venus was the exception to what we could almost call the rule of warfare <laughs> very good observation by don i love him he asked is this correct and was this envision and plan into the construction of the archetypical mind possibly not with respect particularly to warfare as we have experienced it but to the extreme action to pol action to polarization in consciousness um, so ra says it is correct that the logos designed its experiment to attempt to achieve the greatest possible opportunities for polarization in third density it's important to keep this phrase in mind or this sentence and i'll repeat it Ra continues and says, it is incorrect that warfare of the types specific to your experiences was planned by the Logos. Very important too. This form of expression of hostility is an interesting result which is apparently concomitant with that or with the tool 
making ability. The choice of the logos to use the life form with the grasping thumb is the decision to which this type of warfare may be traced. So, um, <laughs> uh, quick recap, if you don't know, in the model of, or the structure, uh, the cosmology of the law of one, where did I go? Where's my slide? There it is. Okay. So, um, in the cosmology of the law of one, we know that Maldic is the, or rather the asteroid belt is the remnants of the, uh, the planet known as Maldic. In fact, some people have gone so far to speculate that comets are part of the ocean that was on Maldic. I like that. I can imagine that exploring going <laughs> on an orbit around the um, around the the sun, right? And so, because they're mainly water and some earth or uh, dirt, uh, should we call it minerals? So that's Maldic. It exploded. The whole episode or various episodes are in the beginning uh, parts of this series. Session 7, I think. 6, around there. Session 6, I think. We talked about Maldic and other sessions. You can look it up. Uh, and so we had Mars. Mars also, they didn't annihilate, their, they didn't explode their planet, but they made it completely unviable for life. And we can see the scars right now because if you look at one side of the planet, you see that it's all, it's been battered by something. You know, scientists say, oh, it's just, you know, asteroids and um, other debris, right? Um, that could be, but if we follow the cosmology of the low one, then we think that, you know, they destroyed their planet and they had to move here. So following the cosmology of the law of one, they were moved here, not physically. It's all mental. They died, all of them. <laughs> uh, some people think that they came in with ships and stuff and there have been people who write about this and that they had visions, but visions are symbolic to my understanding. I, I think Ra was very explicit when they said that they were genetically added to the pool, gene pool. And some people have speculated, of course, um, um, that this is, this is the creation of the Anunnaki and so forth and the genetic manipulation so that we are inferior. I can see why this is all in the collective consciousness, but I think this is all being misinterpreted. It's only my two cents. I don't, I don't claim to have the real truth. But following the law of one, it seems more sophisticated to think that the mental... Uh, database that was in Mars was rescued by the Confederation, which is simply the governing agent in this Logos, which has evolved out from the same thing and has collected all of this and said, well, let's not waste this, you know, let's put it back on Earth. And so it has created an even deeper uh, experience. That's exactly what established the quarantine, meaning that we have interfered free will enough on planet Earth that we need to establish uh, some limits now. <laughs> so it's a whole different uh, topic here, but the point is that we have those experiences, right? Maldic and Mars, and now on Earth, especially this was 1983 already, I think, 1982, 93, it doesn't matter. In the 80s, Cold War, we were facing for the first time on the history, total global annihilation. It's crazy especially at the height of Cold War, this is this was being channeled. So Don, you know, was very, you know, perceptive to say like, what's happening at this logos? You know, what's happening on, on the solar system? Why are we blowing ourselves up? Uh, is this something that uh, the logos envision and it's part of the construction of the archetypical mind, right? He says, was this envision and plan into the construction of the archetypical mind? Um, Possibly, he admits, possibly not with respect particularly to warfare, but to extreme action to polarization in consciousness. And so Ra says, yes, it is correct that the Logos design, this is the, the catch here, okay? So pay attention. It is correct that the Logos design its experiment to attempt to achieve the greatest possible opportunities for polarization in third density. Okay, so they're saying it is correct that 
the design was for greater opportunities for polarization of consciousness in third density. Okay? They're not saying yes to war. Okay? Now, how is it that war makes us polarize? Well, we have talked about this in the past, and I'll recap that um, war is the most extreme form of separation and of control and so on. And so it always brings the balance, you know? It brings the balance to say no to war, basically, as we have been crying these past years with Ukraine and now Israel and Palestine. Um, and so, of course, in, in the mystic view, uh, this cry is not activism. Um, this cry is from the inner heart, you know, to say internally, no, this is, this is not who we are. I don't accept it. You know, this is, some people will say, oh, no, we're, we're lost. You know, we're always going to be at war. That's what we go against within ourselves and say, I don't agree with that. I don't see this the way you see it. Um, this is inspiring to some, and if it's not, then so be it. But at least you are convinced that this is not the way. So, okay. Now, they say it is incorrect that warfare of the types specific to your experience was planned by the Logos. See, it wasn't planned by the Logos. To, um, okay, so it wasn't planned. The warfare wasn't planned. How? They say the form, this form of expression of hostility, war, uh, is just an interesting result which is apparently concomitant with the tool-making ability. Concomitant means like uh, uh, together, jointly, you know, insep not inseparable, but it seems to be part of it, right? Um, so it seems to be dependent on or coming from parallel to tool-making, see? That choice of the Logos can be traced to the opposable thumb. So in essence, it created the opposable thumb to see what we would do. Okay, let's see what we do with our hands instead of our minds. And so we designed clubs to beat each other. <laughs> clubs weren't enough, so we designed, you know, um, blades. And so blades were more efficient at killing people. Then eventually, you know, in the 1800s, we found gunpowder to be... Uh, helpful to propel uh, some um, some little bowls, lead bowls, into somebody else's body and say, well, that's that's easier, that's more efficient. <laughs> and so on and on we go, we uh, created more explosives and then we got to, um, you know, the nuclear bombs and so on. And, and it's just like, all right, do we stop now? <laughs> um, do we continue to do things to destroy ourselves? So it is interesting, you know, that, that's it. You know, it's the tool-making ability that made us want to go into war. Uh, but war wasn't the sign itself. So that's, that's actually fascinating. Okay, let's move to the next question. Don says in question 19, then did our logos hope to see generated a positive and negative harvest from each density up to the sixth, starting with the third as being the most efficient form of generating experience known to it at the time of its construction of this system of evolution. Ross says, yes. So, yeah, Don's question is, is interesting, of course, because how do we know this? And I think Don must have had this in mind. If we know that Logos intensified the veiling process, right? And intensifying the veiling process means that you can uh, create the environment for negativity to rise up, uh, then the Logos did design that, see? And it wanted to create negativity. Now, of course, this can be taken by, you know, the. Um, very brief overview and here oh the logos is evil we cannot attribute 
morality to the logos because it's just experiencing things. It's like calling a child evil or uh, good or sage or whatever. You're attributing things that do not belong to them or just being who they are or what they are, you see. So the logos didn't intend to be, you know, negative. Just wants to experience everything, just like the creator. The creator is not evil because it wants to experience itself as a negative entity. So, yes, um, the Logos did create an environment to generate a positive and negative harvest and intensify it by those means. And those would be the most efficient form of generated experience known to it, to the Logos or the creator, at the time of its construction. I like it. I enjoy it. Let's see if we can cover one or two more questions. Uh, I want to get to one specific so we can end in that beautiful notes. Let's see if we can get to that. Question 20, Don says, then built into the basis of the archetypes is possibly the mechanism for creating the polarization in consciousness for service to others and service to self. Is this in fact true? Ra says, yes, you will notice that many inborn biases which hint to the possibility of one's paths being more efficient than the other. This was the design of the Logos. So briefly, because we're entering a new, um, yeah, I'm gonna cover this and end it. Um, we have at least two more questions that I wanna, I wanna read, but very briefly, the many inborn biases which hint to the possibility of one path being more efficient than the other. This means that within the biases of our minds, there are inclinations, there are directions, uh, signs that tell us which path is more efficient. We know already that the most efficient path is the positive path, but to a human who hasn't figured out, who hasn't made the choice yet, it doesn't know. And so it needs to create this bias. But there are helps or there are aids in there in our minds to show us that the positive path is the most efficient path. Um, and Don's question was more on that it was within the structure of the archetypes was the possibility for creating service to others and service to self. So. What we get out of Ra is that there were signs. See, there were signs in there. There are signs in the archetypical mind, the way we are, to point out that the positive path, the path of love and acceptance is the most efficient one. Now it's funny, because Ra, <laughs> Don says in question 21, then what you're saying is that once the path is recognized, Either the positive or the negative polarized entity can find hints along his path as to the efficiency of that path. Is this correct? Ra says, that which you say is correct upon its own merits, but is not a repetition of our statement. Um, <laughs> what you say is true, but it's not what we said. Our suggestion was that within the experiential nexus of each entity within its second density environment and within the roots of mind, there were place biases indicating to the watchful eye the more efficient of the two paths. Let us say, for a want, for a want of a more precise objective, that this logos has a bias towards kindness. That's where I want to end this episode on. So, um, Don's question, just to, because hey, the question was answered in the affirmative when Don says that uh, either the positive or the negative polarized entity will find hints along his path as to the efficiency of that path. Yes, of course. Once you're in the path, you would find hints as to, you know, uh, which, um, the efficiency of the particular path in which you are. I have a strong belief that those on the negative path they will find hints that that is not the most efficient path, but they will ignore them because depending on how strong they are in their ego, they will continue stubbornly in that direction. However, 
there are points, and I will never forget when Ross said that 20% of four density negative beings switch to positive. That's a fifth. They lose a fifth uh, of their minions to positive path because they realize it. They look at the science and say, well, that's that's more efficient. Let's go that way. You know, so uh, it, it's fewer and fewer entities that follow the negative path as they move up the, the densities. So Ra does say, yes, it is true. But what we said was that within the, the experiential nexus of each entity, within its second density environment, which is our animal form, okay, uh, I'll explain that. Uh, and within the roots of mind, of course, there were place biases indicating to the watchful eye the more efficient of the two paths. So signs that the most efficient path was the positive one. Ra says, let us say for want of a more precise adjective that this Logos has a bias towards kindness. So it, it placed within us this bias towards kindness. How so? How is that in our second density form? Well, again, this is my speculation, which I think is quite right, but I'm always open to changing it. Um, I think that mammals have a, a distinct advantage of developing and activating the heart chakra because you have to nurture you know, your child, your offspring. And let's not talk about humans, let's talk about animals. You can see how there is a, a relationship of love right there, whereas non-mammals are aloof, indifferent of their offspring. Normally, not all of them, of course. There is still some sort of uh, love uh, interaction between certain species, but it seems like mammals have that more strongly than others, right? And so we humans have to do the same thing. Um, this is why, you know, in memes, we usually uh, have like, you know, mystery babies. Like when we say, you know, I'm drinking baby tears, like <laughs> that's the form of evil, you know, it's a meme expression of being evil um, because babies are adorable. You know, they're just like, you want to take care of them. You don't even know why you're just saying, you see a baby and you, you have to take care of it. You know, it's like, it's you. Um, so yeah, I think the, the biases are set there in the second density environment. And within the roots of the mind, I think it's just as natural knowing that, you know, <laughs> The feeling of love is just nice, you know, it's, there is no doubt there, you know, everybody wants love. Uh, the whole planet is seeking love, uh, unconsciously maybe, but they're seeking love. They're seeking in, in uh, wealth, relationships, in uh, items, in substances, in activities, in all kinds of interactions with their environment. Uh, that's love, you know, that's love right there. I remember Ramdas talking about the the addicts, you know, these junkies who are going, you know, from one high to the other. And he said, you have to see that, you know, what they're tasting in their um, in their highs is God. They're taking a you know a sip of God every so often, and they're so they're not addicted to the substance. They're addicted to love, to you know, to that feeling of unity that they get you know with the high so they're in love with that just that they they don't know that they can achieve that without the substance you know and that's that's our mission that's our purpose to show them you don't need it you know um but yeah on that note um we're gonna end the this session we still have another eight questions to go through so We'll finish in part three. Conclusions. So much that we talked about here, uh, the archetypical mind being this, this structure in which we, we experience ourselves and we are dependent on for having interactions with other people. Um, that's an invitation for anybody who is interested 
in studying it. Um, there are many things that can be explored and known there. I wish we had more material, but we don't, uh, and only time will tell. Fortunately, we don't need the archetypical mind to be studied for us to uh, get in touch with ourselves and find that peace, that love that we're looking, that joy, that harmony, uh, that state of equanimity that we're so uh, more clearly seeing over time in this path. Um, that's within you. That's not outside of you. Um, it is within you, and it's only a matter of keep looking inside, keep looking, whichever method you're using. Uh, I'll suggest once again, over and over, that you take the path of looking inwardly to see all the things that you need to see and to find all the things that you're seeking. And that's it. Um, I have nothing else to say, but in the next episode, we will continue with this conversation because um, they're going to continue with this conversation all the way until the very end when Don is going to ask one or two questions unrelated to this conversation, and then we're going to end it. Thank you so much, as usual, for listening, for watching. I hope you are fine, you're well, whatever you are, at whatever time of the day. Have a good day or a good night, and I'll see you in part three of session 90.